Yes, Lord Jesus, your life becomes our life. Let us walk with you. You have called us. You have came, sought, and found us. We are baptized into your name, connected to you. And so your life becomes our life. Yes, your death becomes our death, but your resurrection becomes ours too. So give us the hope and the life and the peace that only come from you. And show us, Holy Spirit, again, what you have for us today. You would point us to where our true life is found in Jesus. Amen. What if you could do one thing, that attainable one thing, to live longer, would you? If you knew there was one fairly simple thing, would you do it? Probably uh, some nods, depending on it. Yeah, depends what it is. Fairly normal, fairly simple. If you could do one thing, call it, as some have a, a near magical elixir, miracle drug, not really, but if you knew there was one thing you could do that would not only, as pretty good studies have shown, make you live longer, but w- would make you happier and healthier, would you do it? Yeah, what's the catch, right? So you're saying, uh, please don't say kale smoothies. Please don't say kale smoothies. <laughs> oh, wait, that's me. That, I'm the one person saying, please no kale smoothies. What is it? I'm not kidding you. It's coming to worship. There's been, uh, it's about five years now that the first uh, publishing of some of the studies that have come out, and this would be before COVID, there was an article in USA Today by a professor at Harvard's School of Public Health. He's an epidemiology professor and public health, uh, and which, by the way, is not a Christian institution, so it's really interesting that they're finding that coming to worship actually does powerful things, not just for your soul, but your body as well. And this article from USA Today, I think it was 2018, the title was this, Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. Now, not in the way you're thinking. It's God doesn't work like just come and give and pray and I'll magically fix everything in your life. That actually is not how it works. But in some unique way that is measurable that people are finding, coming to worship, going to church actually uh, improves your, your well-being and your health. Now, some of you just say, well, duh, I knew that. How many people have I visited in a hospital or a care facility, and they essentially say that? Well, I say something like, well, how is it being alone here if people can't visit you? And, well, I'm not alone. The Lord's with me. And what a boost that is. But I'm really fascinated in my Bible study that past fall talked more about some of this study that more things are coming out from it. But the gist of it is it's pretty bulletproof in some ways. Very, very good research. And it involved 70,000 women nurses. And things they found between people that regularly, weekly or almost weekly attended worship or did not found things like 20% less likely to be depressed. That's pretty significant. 20% less likely, 50% less likely to get divorced. And this was over a long period, longitudinal study, many years. Uh, And again, 70,000 people, they found 20% less likely to be depressed, 50% less likely to be divorced, 15 to 30% reduced mortality. That is over 10 to 15 years the ones that went to church were upwards of 30% more likely to be alive. Better for your health. Isn't that wild? And maybe the most uh, 
notable statistic is five times less likely to commit suicide, to be that depressed and that, that uh, bottom feeling of, of people who attended worship regularly. And then the same professor has written later, fleshing out some of the stats, saying how uh, this was, like I said, before COVID, he had written that uh, this is the oncoming public health crisis in America. He's using that language. The coming public health crisis in America is people not going to church. Well, of course, obviously in 2020, uh, something else got all of the press about a public health crisis, obviously. But uh, he's wrote about this uh, suicide rate saying, you know, he can pinpoint from the numbers that it's probably 40% of the rise of suicides in the last 10 to 15 years are the direct result of those very people not coming to worship anymore. Oh, that, that hurts, right? On the flip side, isn't that wild to think? Coming to worship, interacting with each other here, being here, won't do for everybody, not a promise, not, not a silver bullet, but on the whole, could be the direct result of you and I being happier, healthier. It says that you end up volunteering more and being more generous. All of these positive well-being things in your life. So much so that the researcher, his name's Tyler Vanderweel, he writes an article, you know, there are some very big uh, implications. Like if your doctor already asks you about healthy habits you should be doing or, or bad habits you should be quitting, if they know you're a Christian, shouldn't your doctor then be asking you if you're going to worship because they know it's Potentially the number one good thing for your health? Oh, that's really interesting. And he goes on to say, and, and it might have more effect coming from your doctor than from your pastor saying you should come to church, right? Oh, yeah, that, that's good. That's good. Now, I realize none of you came here with the result of, gee, I really hope my blood pressure goes down, so I better go to church. Like, no, that's not why you came. You came to hear that God loves you and that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose for you. And that is absolutely true. And those blessings go far beyond bodily health blessings, but they're, they're included too. Now, why, why am I spending all this time on this? One, I think it's interesting. That's one thing. But that's not it. There's two major things. One is, yes, being together as God's people is good for our health. Wow. But the second thing that's also true is, you know the answer to this, in, in your lifetime, in my lifetime, has church attendance in America gone up or gone down? Down. So those two things create what Tyler Vanderbilt says is the coming that's here already and will grow, American public health crisis, and it's almost unbelievable to see the tie between the two and and. People going to church, being more healthier and, and living longer. So what's going on there? Well, yes, it's now for the first time since numbers have ever been counted and recorded, less than, I believe, 50% of Americans say they belong to a church of sorts. More than that would say they're Christian, but belong to. And church attendance rates hover around, had hovered around 30%. And a third of that number, high 20s, went down post-COVID. So we already had, he would call it a public health crisis of not going to church. A different public health crisis caused that even more, and here we are. 
So what does that mean? Well, you and I, and every other neighbor we know and care about, we haven't, as a people, become any less religious. We've just gotten religious about different things. So it doesn't matter if all of the churches in America clear out in the next 50 or 100 years and they're all closed and they're all empty. It, it would not mean that we have become a less religious people in our hearts, but it means we stopped worshiping the true God and started putting our hope and trust in something else. What is that? Well, those are the things we've been exploring in this Lent. And today, the reason I bring this study up today is I think one of the biggest things we can look and see that people have shifted their belief and trust in God and got religious about something else, and that something else is power. And the chapter 5 in Convict Gods uh, is all about what can happen when we let power grip our hearts and want that more than the love of our Lord. So what's going on? As churches, as you have known and seen, uh, are less full now than, say, 40 or 50 years ago in America, as church attendance has declined, what form of power have people had new, uh, a new and growing interest in? It's a different P word. Politics. It's pretty easy to see, right? How uh, those of you that are older, if you can think 30, 40 years ago, a presidential election, how, how bad of a mood were people in when their person lost the next day on a scale of one to 10, right? Compare it to the last two presidential elections you've lived through, how bad of a mood were people in when their person lost, right? A simple metric of that might tell you uh, as we have become less Christian as a society. We have taken our hope away from Jesus. We've put it into something else because we're still deeply religious worshipers. We will worship something. We will look for something that can promise us hope and control and promise us what we think we really want. And power, politics, makes great promises. And people are happy to step in that void and make those promises like me, and I'll make all your wildest dreams come true and do all these things, and everything will be wonderful. And we know before we vote for them that they can't deliver, but you do it anyways, right? You have to at some point. So what's going on? Of the three uh, big idols, we've talked about money, we've talked about sex today, power. Now, sometimes some of you might think, well, I've, I've never really had much of that, or I've, I've never been in a powerful position compared to others, and yet uh, it still creeps for some of us, maybe more than others in our hearts, but, but it's still there. There's still a temptation, even if it's uh, in voting or even if it's in different ways. There is a promise, a counterfeit God or a substitute God that is to look somewhere else other than God, to give you the things that only God can give you. Only God can truly bring you security and peace in your heart and true hope and, and can truly heal your fear and anxiety. No, no earthly leader can do that, even if they are a good leader and do good things. But they can't be God. They, they can't do everything. And so we have these you might say surface idols, money, sex, power, that are easier to see, 
And then there's things that they hide kind of beneath the surface you might call deeper or hidden idols. So you might be sitting and thinking, I've never had a powerful position. I've never been a boss. I've never, that's never been my thing. But I wonder if at some point all of us have been tempted to want to control something. Because for me, that's kind of the first step of struggling with, with power, right? Is, is, can I just control this? It'll make everything go better, right? And I don't know what that is for you. Sometimes it's, um, it, it can be obsessing over, over money, but it might actually be about control. If I, if I obsess over my, my income and, and investments and all these things, it means I can control the outcome of what will happen later in life. And subtly, if I can control how much money I'll, I'll have, I can trust the pile over here, and my heart doesn't really need to trust in God. Or you can want to control your, your, your children, because you're afraid of what the outcome might be if you don't. So you want to control where, where they go to school or where, where they, who they hang out with. And, and if they get the wrong friends, you not just encourage them away from that, but, you know, change schools or do something else to change their friends. And, and you want to control maybe where they graduate from or what field they go into and, and, and make them successful. Because then you feel like you are too. Or maybe it's a situation at work you want to control, not just because you want it to go well, but something deeper like, well, I don't want to lose my job, which isn't all bad either, but there's something that comes out in you that just has to control every detail and micromanage because you're afraid of looking bad. I wonder how often do we all find ourselves wanting to take control of things that God hasn't given to us to do that. And anytime we're, we're tempted to over-control, it's usually because control's good friend, fear, has moved into our heart as well. And when you get right down to it, our temptation for, for power, our temptation for control, is wanting to be God rather than to trust God. Right? What is it that the... Snake, who we met this morning, seemed friendly enough hmm, at times, to Adam and Eve, right? You will be, what's the temptation? You will be like God. Oh. And how often is our temptation to want to be God rather than trust God? Did you pay attention when I read from Matthew 26 and 27, Jesus being betrayed, arrested, put on trial? How many ways were his enemies trying to control the situation because the worst thing they could imagine was giving up, it says, their, their power, their prestige, their position, and we'll do anything to keep what we have. And you hear Caiaphas say in John 11 with Lazarus, if one guy's got to die, that's a small price to pay for keeping what we have. And you see how John writes that. It's actually the gospel. You killed one man thinking you were saving yourself, and that one man was God himself who willingly died for all of you. But Jesus, did you see how many ways was giving up his power? The most powerful person to live who has the power to heal people who haven't walked in their life and make people see who haven't seen in their life and raise a dead person. 
He has all the power in the world, and he is giving it up. When people want to, uh, want to spit on him, beat him, lie about him, and yes, kill him, crucify him, and he doesn't do anything to show what we think is power. He doesn't set them straight. He doesn't say, nope, wrong, 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 wrong. And do you see how many false witnesses they drag? They can't even get their story straight. It says they're trying to get false witnesses, but then they, they can't get it right, and, and they're trying to get more. And Jesus, he's lied about. He's plotted against. He's, he's put through this sham trial, and he lets it happen. He doesn't try to take control because he knows that it is the will of his loving father to have you back. And so he's willing to, to give it all up. As Philippians says, though he was equal with God, did not consider that something to be grasped, but made himself lower. That is willing to put on your, not just your shoes and your clothes, but your, your sins and mine and your suffering and, and your brokenness and, and take that to the cross where Hebrews says, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. What is that joy? It's you. It's having you back. It's reclaiming you. Do you see that it's God's love that would drive the most powerful human being to ever live to give all of that up and die like a criminal on a cross? That's what real power looks like. And that's also where you and I have our temptations and, and falling into wanting control and wanting power. It's, it's where you and I are healed and we realize we can, we can trust God. You see, at, at the cross of Jesus, you and I aren't offered another way to control our lives or the lives of, of things around, people around us or things around us. We're not offered more control. We're actually offered less. That's what faith is. It's trusting. But you're offered trust in one who is truly reliable, that you can lean on and you'll, he'll never fall. You see, at the cross, you are offered forgiveness for every time you and I have tried to, to be God. And you're given one who is stretching out his arms that are bleeding and saying, come to me, trust me. Jesus wants to show you that he is trustworthy. He is your trustworthy God who, yes, lived and died and rose for you, and he is your security, and you can hope in him, and you can lean on him. And so, no, Jesus doesn't offer you and I more control and more power, but he does, I think, offer you something better. True peace with God. You can trust him. Amen.